If Mount Rainier were to blow up tomorrow, it could take out 80,000 homes. Not from the blast, but from the glacier runoffs known as lahars. These would instantly heat up, and the, the, the glaciers would instantly heat up and turn to giant rivers. Now, lahars can flow up to 100 feet deep and up to 100 miles per hour, obliterating everything in its path. And if Rainier erupted in just the right way, these lahars could take out a lot of Puyallup, Auburn, even Tacoma, and even possibly reach the Puget Sound. The ash from the explosion would darken the sky for days. It could possibly be so thick that having piled up on roofs, any rainfall, just add rain and we'll experience roofing collapses throughout the Puget Sound area. The ash will get in our lungs and cause respiratory issues, which will potentially even kill some and will give others breathing struggles for the rest of their life. Now, given the historical frequency of Rainier's eruptions, there is a 1 in 10 chance that it will erupt during our lifetimes, possibly even higher given that it's been dormant for so long. A recent unexpected volcano eruption in Guatemala on June 3rd this year shows just how quickly volcanoes can blow and the devastation they can bring as well. At least 113 people have died from this Guatemala explosion, and the number's probably a lot higher. There are 332 still missing. Now, question for you. Are devastating events like these, are they from the hand of God, or are they simply natural phenomena? Are they from the hand of God, or are they natural phenomena? The answer is yes. It's both. They are natural phenomena, and that the earth is simply doing what the earth does, and they are from the hand of God, in that God over, sovereignly oversees that they occur. Maybe we don't like to think that way. We don't want to hold God guilty for destruction and death. But if we believe in a sovereign God, the sovereignty of God, we have no other choice but to believe this, that God oversees these events that take place. This fact is attested by the prophets Isaiah and Amos. Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Amos 3.6 asks us, If calamity occurs in the city, has not Yahweh done it? It's the hand of God that does these things. And the prophet named Joel, Joel, he also had no problem attributing to God a horrifying natural disaster. He knew automatically that what he and his nation were facing was brought to them by God. And so turn with me to the book of Joel, if you're not already there, the book of Joel. This is what we will be considering this morning, and by God's grace, over the, the course of the summer, we will investigate and study this wonderful minor prophet. And there was a, fam- there was a, it, there was a famine in the land in Joel's day, and it was a famine that came up with no warning. One day, everyone had plenty to eat, crops were growing, the people were merry, and they were comfortable. Then in a span of a few days or some short weeks, there was nothing to eat, nothing at all, and death by starvation was a real threat. This was an act of God. God acted with a purpose to wake up the people of Israel from their spiritual slumber. But God did not just make food magically disappear, no. He did what he almost always does. He used natural means. 
Now, what could do this? What could cause the food to go away and the famine and total devastation in just a few days' time? It would be locusts. Locusts. Locusts without number. So let's begin this morning by reading our text. We'll be, we'll read, we'll, our text this morning will be the entire chapter of, of Joel chapter 1. And let's go ahead and look there to see what God has done. Joel 1 begins. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of Yahweh. The priests mourn, the ministers of Yahweh. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar, come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So is the reading of God's word. Let us come before him now in prayer. Lord God, we enter into this text. We enter into your holy word with fear and trembling, knowing that you are a holy and awesome God. Father, speak to us, speak to hearts, speak to consciences, speak to our minds this morning, Lord God, through this text, and may it bring a blessing. May we not go from here in famine spiritually, but leave with joy everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, by God's grace, we will focus our study in the next two months of July and August on this book of Joel. And I encourage you to read through it on your own and to get a grasp of its message. Now, unbeknownst to me, when I picked Joel for the summer study, um, I did not realize that our upcoming church family retreat is going to be on the Minor Prophets. So come September, you will get a full dose of all 12. Hopefully this will serve as uh, a wedding of our appetite for more. Now, the Minor Prophets, of which Joel is the second out of those 12, they are terribly misnamed. They're terribly misnamed. When we, when we think of minor, <clears throat> we often think of lesser, right? <clears throat> or not important. But that is anything but true. The only thing minor about them is their length. <clears throat> Excuse me. Perhaps we see them like uppity French hors d'oeuvres, right? Like caviar or oysters or snails. Only the upper class thinks the minor, or only the upper class thinks those things are appetizing. Only the seminary student thinks the minor prophets are appetizing, right? And so we, we sadly leave these great books unconsumed and go only for the prime rib of Matthew or the barbecue chicken wings of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so on, right? I asked one uh, LHBC attendee what they knew of the book of Joel, to which they replied, nothing, except that someone named their kid Joel Osteen. <laughs> now, this godly person who divulged this lack of knowledge uh, this was a godly person. This person was quite godly, and I, I know it's sadly to be true similarly of, of the church at large. And these minor prophets might as well be called the forgotten prophets. So perhaps we can recover the book of Joel this summer and hopefully all 12 books on the church family retreat. Now another reason why it's erroneous for Christians to ignore these 12 books is given in Joel 1 verse 1. Look there. Look how the book starts. It begins, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. What we are about to study is the very words, are the very words of Yahweh, God Almighty. Enough said, right? If God says it, then we should hear it and obey it. Furthermore, Paul himself instructs us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I hope that we can prove this truth that all scripture is profitable through our upcoming exposition of Joel. Now, as we just saw, God is the ultimate author of all scripture, but our human author of this book is the man Joel. He is the human instrument through which God gives this proclamation, and Joel recognizes that fact. He understands that so well that he gives us very little information about himself. He doesn't care to, to express anything about himself other than his own name and the name of his father. Now, his name, if you break it down to etymology, is, uh, uh, it means Yahweh is God. Joel, or better pronounced in the Hebrew, Yael. Yah is El. Yah is God. God uh, Jehovah is God. Now, there are other Joels mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Samuel's firstborn son, the judge or prophet Samuel's firstborn son was named Joel. But there's not enough context in this book to enable us to tie it down or to pin it down to anybody. Joel is a mystery figure. Joel is a mystery figure. Now, it's also very difficult to anchor this book in a specific date in history. Joel gives us no words at the beginning and very little throughout that can actually help us pinpoint a date. It's one of the hardest books in the Bible to put a date on. 
godly men have come up with three or four various positions. And while I can't say strongly that any of those are wrong, the one I lean to is the earliest of the possible positions. And this would put us in the 9th century BC, around the year 850, and in the days of Elijah, the prophet Elijah. One commentator even thinks that the plague and drought experienced in Joel 1 corresponds with the three and a half year drought under Elijah. This would be, if this is the case, this would be about 80 years after the northern kingdom and the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, kingdom split under Solomon's son, but at well over 100 years before the northern kingdom is deported. But it's hard to be dogmatic on timing. Um, if you want to study it yourself and get it, really get into it, you can, you can I would, that'd be awesome to do, let me know your position, but I will spare us a half an hour discourse on when this book took place, because that's probably what it would take to go through all the, the lines of evidence. But the great thing about the book of Joel, the great thing about the book of Joel is that its message is timeless. Its message does not need the historical context to help us understand it. Other books like Hosea or other prophets and be Amos would make little sense if we did not know the historical context, but not the case with Joel. Still makes perfect sense without us. Now, perhaps we would wish that he'd give us more information, but Joel, you see, Joel was a man on a mission. Joel was not your typical prophet. Most prophets would, would, um, hear, would see the sin in the people and see a judgment coming, and they would prophesy against their sin. That's not Joel. Joel's people are already being judged. Joel's people are already experiencing judgment. And so he's come to call them to repent. He's come in the judgment and is going to explain to them what God is doing. And so Joel skips all but the barest and most essential introductory formalities and jumps right into his message in verse 2, which is where we begin our outline this morning with point number one, contemplate the devastation. Contemplate the devastation. Now, Joel is probably flicking a locust or two off his paper as he writes. Remember, this plague is happening. This is happening. And he begins, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. When you put hear and listen together in Hebrew, that is his way of saying, listen up. Stop whatever you're doing and give me your full attention. Joel exhorts the elders first to pay attention. This is referring probably to the ruling segment in the society. It's because it's set against the inhabitants of the land, which would be everyone else. The elders were to provide the example to follow, leading the way in response to this message from Yahweh. But all people were expected to heed this word. All are expected to heed the words of God anytime God speaks, correct? In this church, our elders, we, we, they lead the way. They lead the way, but you as the people are called to follow and obey as well. So the elders are called upon now to hear and obey, and likewise the people after them. Joel then asks in the second part of verse 2, a rhetorical question that I'll rephrase this way. Joel asks, can you recall anything like this ever happening before, either in your lifetime or in that of your forefathers? Now, the implied answer is clearly no. This event had no parallel at the time. It's a unique, one-of-a-kind event in Israel's history up to this point, and thus it demands to be interpreted in the light of God's sovereign purposes. God is doing something here in this disaster, Joel says, so focus. 
take note of what is going on and why. And don't ever forget it. Verse 3 tells him to, say, tells him to tell to your sons and to their sons and their sons and so on. Why? What's the big deal? Verse 4 gives it to us. It explains the great enormity of the current situation. Verse 4, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. This depicts a total destruction. Wave after wave of locusts has come down upon the land. There's been a continual barrage day after day after day of these noisy, unending locusts. Now this this fourfold fury that we see in verse 4 is probably best seen as one ginormous, that's not even a word, one humongous horde of locusts described by four synonymous words. There are, in fact, nine different words in the Hebrew language, nine different words in the Hebrew language for locust. So Joel uses multiple terms to denote one unrelenting horde that literally came in and ate everything. Future verses in our text, as we read earlier, reveal some of the specifics of their damage. Verse 7 says, It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. Verse 10, the field is ruined. Verse 11, the harvest of the field is destroyed. And so on. Total destruction. Now, locusts typically are solitary in nature and harmless to society. But given the right conditions, such as a drought followed by rapid vegetation growth, one possibility, this triggers something in their brains and locusts turn into beasts. They start to reproduce like crazy, they begin to swarm together, and they become migratory in search of food. It's been shown that one female grasshopper that lays eggs in June may have 18 million living descendants by October. In some swarms, the concentrations of locusts are as high as 1,000 per square yard. That's like this pulpit, width, height, and depth, a thousand. Remember, Joel and the people of Israel are living this right now as he writes. Their backyards are brown, not from dead grass, but from no grass. Their fields are destroyed, their upcoming harvest eradicated, their storehouses for winter will be completely empty. To us, it's words on a page. To Joel's listeners, whose entire livelihood and culture was based on agriculture, this is life and death. And perhaps we can better relate if we take a step into the worst locust plague experience in America. 1874 was known as the year of the locust. I want to read an excerpt, a little bit lengthy excerpt, just so you can get that picture of what a swarm of locusts can do. Late one July morning in 1874... 12-year-old farm girl, Lily Marks, watched the sunlight dim and and a peculiar darkness sweep over the Kansas sky. A whirring, rasping sound followed, and there appeared, as she later recalled, a moving gray-green screen between the sun and earth. Then something dropped from the clouds like hail, hitting her family's house, trees, and picket fence. A swarm of rocky mountain locusts had invaded the Great Plains. With their pant legs cinched with string, farmers ran to cover their valuable wells. In many cases, their drinking water was about the only thing they could save. As the swarms landed on houses, fields, and trees, the skies cleared, but then the real devastation began. 
The locusts soon scoured the fields of crops, the trees of leaves, every blade of grass, the wool off sheep, the leather harnesses off horses, the paint off wagons, and the handles off of pitchforks. They washed in waves against the fences and walls, piling a foot deep or more. Locusts picked clean whole watermelon patches and stripped fruit trees, leaving peach pits dangling from empty branches. They feasted for days, even devouring the clothing and quilts farmhands threw protectively over their vegetable gardens. The locust farmers grimly quipped, ate everything but the mortgage. Having ravaged the fields and trees, the locusts then invaded the farmers' houses, clearing out barrels and cupboards and devouring anything not secreted away in wood and metal containers. They even shredded curtains and clothing. At night, farm families had to shake bedding to dislodge grasshoppers before retiring and considered themselves lucky if another shaking or two was not needed before morning. The air is literally alive with them, a New York Times correspondent wrote from Kansas. They beat against the houses, swarm in at the windows, cover the passing trains. They work as if sent to destroy. One report released in 1874 suggested that just one family in ten had enough provisions to last the coming winter. To avoid starvation, many desperate settlers, especially in western Kansas and Nebraska, abandoned their homestead claims and their dreams of a new life to return east. Kansas alone lost as much as one-third of its population to migration or starvation. That gives you a taste of Joel's experience of Jerusalem's experience, of Israel's experience. Perhaps you can understand a little better now why they've been aptly called the incarnation of hunger. You see, God was at work in Joel's time for a reason, just as he was in the Great Plains of 1874. The point of such a devastating natural phenomenon was not something Joel was about to let his people miss. This was not just a mere natural disaster. Israel needed to recognize this. Friends, we need to recognize this. There is no such thing as a mere natural disaster. God is always behind it. So contemplate the disaster. Don't miss the point. Don't miss what God wants to do in you through this. Have you recently faced a personal tragedy? Seek the Lord. Seek his favor. Seek his mercy. Seek his wisdom. Go to him with all your heart. Next time we face even a a local or even a national disaster, something that affects us all, let us seek the Lord. What is he doing? What is the point? What response does he want from us, his children? There is no mere natural disaster. God is sovereignly behind it all. And that's Joel's wake-up call. Next, he begins to dissect their spiritual problem and what they need to do about it. And that brings us to point two, confess your misplaced identity, verses 5 through 12. Confess your misplaced identity. And by misplaced, I don't mean lost, but I mean put in the wrong place. Put in the wrong place. Now, when 9-11 happened back in 2001... And nearly 3,000 Americans died in the World Trade Center towers in the Pentagon. America was in great distress. September 16th, the following Sunday, saw a major spike in church attendance. Major spike in church attendance. Pews that regularly sat empty were now full of life. They wanted to know what God thought about 9-11. Many wanted to know God personally. 
Now, while it's true that many people were, and praise God for this, born again in the aftermath of that disaster, most new church visitors eventually stopped coming. The pews went back to empty and regained their dust. What happened? These people had contemplated the disaster, and it terrified them. But they were not willing to take the next step. They were not ready to confess their misplaced identity. And so in time, when the dust settled and life returned to normal, they went back to normal. The God-designed spiritual effects of the disaster were wasted on them. In verses 5 through 12, we see three different segments of people addressed, three genres or types for people who, who were at risk of missing the point. They're at risk of missing the point. Joel highlights these three groups, particularly affected by the locust plague, and he will charge them not to miss God's design in their distress. God's design in their distress. He calls each of them to wake up, to wail, to be ashamed. He's waking them from their spiritual stupor and preparing them for their most necessary action, which he'll press upon them in verse 14. He's preparing them for it. Now remember, God is at work in this locust plague. He's, he's using this, he's using Joel to press deep into their hearts and into their consciences. And friends, God wants to do that today in your heart and conscience as well. He wants you in the shoes of those ancient Israelites to examine your heart and see if you've misplaced your identity, where you've chosen to live for the wrong thing. Are you willing to look? I know if Mount Rainier blew up yesterday and wiped out Puyallup, Tacoma, and Auburn, I know you would be. Oh, how willing you would be to examine yourself if that were the case. Must we need a gargantuan disaster to wake us up? Let's learn from their disaster. In the serenity, the peaceful serenity of today, let's experience God's design for our life without needing the pressure of distress. Now Joel starts in verse 5 with the drunkards and the wine drinkards. Look there. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, you wine drinkers. This is a natural place to start, since they will be immediately affected by the loss of vineyards. Now, drunkards is just what it sounds like. It's people who live on the bottle, live seeking the bottle, or in the Hebrews' days, seeking that calf skin of wine. These people were regularly intoxicated and found their pleasure in life by escaping life. They found their joys in the passing happiness of the alcoholic high. Well, the other group immediately addressed are the wine drinkers. These are not alcoholics, but connoisseurs. They find the, their pleasure in drinking wine. They're not addicted to wine itself. They're addicted to the pleasure that comes from it, that they derive from it. We have an entire segment of society like this today too, right? Wine tasting has popped up everywhere. Now, such pleasurable and delightful experiences are now a thing of the past for these men and women of Israel, as verse 6 and 7 make clear, right? As verse 7 says, my, my vine is a waste. The locusts have made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare cast them away, and their branches have become white. Now, the fig tree splinters refers to the bark that has been torn off. These locusts locusts literally stripped the bark off the vine, which left a white branch, just the core of the branch. This didn't just mean the destruction of one year's crops. This meant the destruction of several years' crops. The vines would need to be dug up, burned, and then replanted. This was a total loss, demanding many years of labor to restore. Last year, California's Napa Valley 
experienced a huge loss due to raging wildfires that took over Northern California. But the fallout was nothing like this. Today, all but one of the hundreds of wineries in Napa Valley are back up and running less than a year later. Israel's wineries will take up to a decade to restore. And so the drunkards and the wine drinkers, they have lost their sweet wine. They have lost their pleasure. And Joel calls them to wake up and weep and wail. Their loss was great, yes, but their loss revealed what was in their hearts. They found their identity not in God, but in pleasure. Is that you this morning? Do you live for pleasure? Do you live for having a good time? Is your identity in sports, in music, in movies, in TV shows, in social media, or maybe even in wealth and being able to buy whatever you like for fun? I'm not addicted to those things, you might say. Perhaps. But are you like the wine drinker? Are you addicted to the pleasure you derive from those things? Are you controlled by pleasure? Now, perhaps one of the easiest ways to see if you are controlled by pleasure is your response when someone simply challenges you to give it up. Hey, you really shouldn't watch the Seahawks this year. Hmm, it's probably best for you to permanently disconnect your cable TV. Or you should forgo that Hawaii vacation. Now, I'm not asking any of you to do these things. Not one of these things is morally evil, but if someone did seriously challenge you like this, how would you respond? In that first gut response, the heart's craving is revealed. The rich young ruler is a case in point of a misplaced identity. Jesus, I want to follow you, the rich young ruler said. And then Jesus hit the nail on the head when he said, go and sell all you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler would not. He would not. And oh, how he rots in hell now, wishing he had forsaken all for Jesus. Don't cling to your pleasure. Don't live for it. Don't make it your life. It will one day be gone, either through disaster or death, and then you will see your mistake. Friends, find your pleasure in the Lord. Make the Lord your treasure. Make him your treasure. Now, Joel has touched but one group of people, and he moves on to the next in verse 8. By way of simile, he is addressing the people of Judah, and particularly those living in the safe confines of Jerusalem, given the reference to the house of the Lord and the priests who would be located there. And he begins verse 8 with wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, this description is one of the most horrendous events that could happen in the, to, the, to an Israelite. An Israelite could picture nothing worse than this. A woman would be betrothed to a man for a length of time, sometimes for years, often less. The man would go and prepare a home for his bride and their future family. His presence in her life would bring security, security in shelter and physical protection and in monetary income. Marriage would also bring fulfillment, both in their friendship and, and as they bore and raised children together. But the picture Joel gives here is of a bride about to marry. The engagement photos are taken and framed. The dress has been tried on and purchased. 
the honeymoon planned and reserved, as it were, and in these final stages, her dearly beloved dies. He dies. And what was about to be a white dress of radiance becomes a black sackcloth of itchiness. The prospect of protection and fulfillment is now turned to vulnerability and loneliness. And that is the picture Joel uses to describe the people of Jerusalem and Judea. A people once secure and at rest are now in danger and great distress. At at the onset of the locust plague, when the locust plague started, the city dwellers, those in Jerusalem, were likely not worried. Right? They probably thought the plague will only affect the country folk and, and the farmlands. We've still got plenty of food in the markets. But then the devastation continued. And what began as a rural problem was now an urban problem as well. So much so that as verse 9 states, verse 9 states, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Friends, that would be like us not being able to find anywhere in the greater Seattle area bread or juice for communion. Can you imagine that? Everything was gone. The plague finally hit home for these city dwellers. And I think this is one reason why 9-11 had such a profound effect on us as a nation. Monstrous Islamic terrorist attacks had happened before in the world with thousands of calamities, but never on U.S. soil. We thought the USA was exempt from such terror. But when it hit us, how we lost our sense of security, our sense of safety, how we as a nation mourned. Friends, the Israelites found their identity in their security in their own resources, and their, in their own created safe space. And is that you? Is that you this morning? Do you find your identity in a safe and comfortable life that you've created for yourself? Do you find it in the retirement you've built up or in the inflated home value you now have that you're waiting to cash in on? Or what about your family? Is your identity in your children? or in the husband who takes care of you, or in the wife who looks after you and the kids? Where's your identity? Is it in these things? Like the pleasure of the pleasure seeker, these things can all be gone in an instant. Whether by disaster or death, you'll eventually lose it. So if you're living for such things, you too will wail and weep like the bride who has lost her bridegroom. Friends, don't put your identity in such things. Place it in the eternal, unchanging one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your security. Make him your comfort. Make him your fulfillment. Find your identity in Christ. And there's one more group he addresses, verse 11 and 12. It's the farmer and the vine dresser. Joel entreats them. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers. Why? Because the harvest of the field is destroyed. All the fruit of the trees of the field dry up. Now, the Hebrew word for farmer here typically denotes a hired hand. This word denotes a hired hand, not, necess- not really the, the owner himself. And the worker labeled as a vine dresser is not confined to work with grapes, but they work with all fruits. So, really, what you have here is the vegetable growers and the fruit farmers, both together, those who work the land. Now, the society in the 9th century B.C., of Israel, Israel's economy was based almost entirely on agriculture. It not only fed the nation, but it was exported to other nations and brought in wealth for Israel. 
To work the land and produce crops was one of the most important jobs in the land. You would go to college, as it were, so you could be a farmer. But these farmers, these fruit workers, they lost it all. Everything they had worked so hard for their entire career was gone. (coughs) Excuse me. Their long hours perfecting tomato plants, wasted. And as mentioned already, it would take years to rebuild what was lost. All their hard work, such a short time gone. And so they mourned. They were called to be ashamed, verse 11, because they found their identity in their work. And is that you, my friend? This third group, are you in this category? Do you find your identity in your career? In your job? Do you live for your work? Mothers at home, is your identity wrapped up in being a mom and a homemaker? Young people in school, is your identity wrapped up in what college you go to or what college you want to go to? Or is it wrapped up in getting straight A's or maintaining a certain GPA? Those are all good and God-given things, but they are not to be your life. They are not to be your identity, what you're known for. Christ alone is your hope of glory. Christ alone must be your hope in your life today. He must triumph over all things in your life. He must have your full devotion. When disaster comes to us, if we do not have our identity in Christ, we will be ruined. We will, like the pleasure seeker, like the security lover, like the workaholic, we will weep, wail, mourn, and be ashamed. And that's what the last two lines of verse 12 tell us is happening. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. All segments of Jewish society have lost their luster for life. The joy that normally accompanies the time of harvest is now replaced by full despair. Friends, don't wait for disaster to strike to realize you've been living for the wrong thing. Make your identity be in the Lord. Find it in Him. Make your rejoicing not be in pleasure, not be in security, not be in your job, not be in anything else. Make your rejoicing be in Jesus Christ, our exalted Savior. When a storm hits, You'll be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. You'll weather the storm in Christ, your strong and sure foundation. You'll be able to say, like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job rejoiced in the Lord when he lost it all. He had his identity in God. Now, have you found yourself in the same place as the Israelites this morning? Has Joel's rousing alarm awakened you? Have you identified a misplaced identity? Then do two things. Confess it to the Lord and cry out to him in repentance. That's also our third point. Cry out in repentance. Cry out in repentance. Having diagnosed our condition and alerting us to it, Joel now calls out for an active repentance. And look at verse 13. I'll reread verses 13 and 14 and make comment as I go. Verse 13 begins, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. 
There are five imperatives in this little section. Joel is not suggesting here, friends. He is commanding here. He's saying, do this. Do this. We continue on. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. That's at the end of verse 13. And what we notice here is that, what we recognize here with the grain offering, the drink offering being gone, a close relationship and communion with God, close relationship and communion with God for Israel was dependent upon these things. It was dependent upon a drink offering and a grain offering. They could not have a close relationship with the Lord without offering these daily at the temple. These outward objects that placated God needed to be replaced by inward hearts that placated God. They needed obvious inward devotion now that the outward devotion was impossible. Also note in the last line of verse 13, it says that they are withheld from the house of your God. Withheld. Who is withholding it? Now the locusts are the ones who ate it, but that just doesn't work here for this verb. Who is withholding it? Friends, it's God. God is withholding the grain offering and the drink offering. There's nothing in the temple. There's nothing in the city. It's all gone. And here we know again that God is in control of all nature. And he will use nature and natural disasters and natural phenomenon to turn people to him. That's God's design in our great distress. That's God's design in our great distress. And so verse 14 gives us the next charge. More commands we see come right at us. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Again, more do this. Proclaim a solemn assembly meant stop what you're doing and get everyone together at the temple. This includes, again, the elders who are the leaders of the people and all the inhabitants, and they were to gather to the house of the Lord your God. Verse 14 tells us, gather to the house of the Lord your God and cry out. To the Lord. Having arrived in God's holy presence at the temple, they were to cry out to Yahweh, to cry out to their covenant keeping God. And this final command of Joel is the one to which all the others in the chapter point. It is the culmination of all the prior imperatives. The drunkards and the wine drinkers need to wake up so they can do this. The farmers need to be ashamed so that they'll do this. The priest needs to consecrate a fast so that they will do this. Everything points to this one command. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. It's not a weeping or a wailing cry, nor is it simply calling out or shouting his name. The Hebrew word is the idea of crying out for help expressing a dire need. It's a persistent, desperate prayer. That's what we all need. If you've been living your life your own way, for your own purposes, you need to repent and cry out to God. Perhaps you've never surrendered your life to God. Perhaps you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ's death for sinners and his resurrection from the grave. If you've never bowed the knee in belief and repentance, you must do so now. Do not wait another day. Do not wait for disaster to strike. Friends, judgment day is real. <clears throat> judgment day is coming and it is almost here. 
we today, we do not like to speak of judgment, but Joel has no problem with it. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, alas for the day. He's not talking about his current day. He's talking about the future. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. This is why we must repent and put our trust in God. There is coming a day of judgment on earth, a final day, when all those who hate God will be destroyed and wiped clean from the earth. This will be a day of terror and deep darkness for those who have ignored God, for all those who have not bowed the knee to him. All other disasters like locust plagues, earthquakes, volcano eruptions, these are all pointers to that one terrible and awesome day. Now, this day of the Lord is the theme of the book of Joel. The rest of the book unpacks this awesome and great day of Yahweh, and we'll learn more about it in the weeks to come. But for now, just realize that while it is a day of great blessing for those who know God and have cried out to him, it's a day of great wrath and judgment and punishment for those who have not. Yahweh God through the pen of Joel, and now through my mouth, commands you to cry out to him in repentance. Turn from your self-serving ways. Give up your identity in this world and find true identity in Jesus Christ. Become a child of God. You can be born again right now if you'll cry out to God in repentance, turning from your own way of life to God's and believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. Friend, if this is you, if you've never done this, do not wait for disaster. Don't wait for just before judgment day. It's been said that he who waits till the 11th hour for salvation always dies at 1030. And I don't mean that as a joke. It's true. In Jesus' day, there was a tower at Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. They didn't wake up that day thinking they were going to die from a tower crushing them. How random is that? You could die in a car accident on your way home or from an overpass collapse. What was Jesus' response to the people who asked him about those 18 who died? He said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Friend, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. Turn to God now. Cry out to the Lord in repentance and experience his salvation and the joy of life in him. If you've got work to do with the Lord, do it right away. I'll be right up here after service if you want to talk. Our elders are available. I'll be one of the last to leave this place today. Let's get right with God. Now for the saints in this place, Perhaps God has revealed to you today that you found your identity lately in something other than him. This does not mean you've never been saved, but it does mean it's time to get back to living for God. Repentance unto salvation happens once, but repentance as a child of God must happen whenever our sins are revealed to us. This call to repent is for us as well, not for salvation since we have it already, but for a renewed walk, a closer walk with God our Father. Cry out to the Lord in repentance. And likewise, we will experience again the joys of living solely for him. This is for all of us. 
in verse 16 and 20, Joel gives some more destruction. This is for Joel too. He puts it in the first person. It is now for Joel as well. Remember, there are likely locusts in his room, creating a buzz as he writes. There's more he wants to say. This plague is so very real to him. And I won't go through again what he says. He just gives some more descriptions of the plague. But I want you to see what's in verse 19. Amidst his own distress, Joel personally shows the way to repentance. Verse 19 begins, To you, O Lord, I cry. To you, O Lord, I cry. He too, the prophet of God, calls upon his Savior He knows he is not a perfect man. He knows he is a sinner and has committed sins that he is not even aware of. And yet he wants a walk ever closer with Yahweh. He wants to walk rightly before his God. And we recognize that even the humblest and holiest of Christians need to return their focus on God regularly. The necessary cares of this world can lead even the godliest adrift. And so Joel sets his own course toward God. Regardless of what the people of Israel do with his prophecy, he will set his course to God. Joel himself is going to seek Yahweh. So friends, perhaps your life is on track with the Lord, and you do not see an area of compromise in your life or any misplaced identity. Praise God for that. But even you, even you, like Joel, can cry out to God. Cry out to him for greater love for him, greater faith in him, greater trust in him, and greater compassion for his people. Cry out to Yahweh, all we his people. Amen. Joel still speaks today, does he not? What an opening chapter. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May that be you and me, men and women of God. May we be complete and equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for revealing to us your perfect word through the prophet Joel. God, disasters come and they take a toll on our lives. God, I pray that we would not need a disaster to wake us up to our need to live fully for you. God, I pray that if there be people in this room, Christian men and women who have been living for the wrong things, that this day they would come before you and repent, reconsecrate their life to you, and live for you alone. May we see a great abandonment of, of, of idolatrous worship of pleasure and other things, Lord God, in our lives. May we live for you. Lord God, I pray for any, not in, this, for any in this room who are not saved God, may your spirit move in them even now to repentance unto salvation. God, we lift up this word to you. May we all, like Joel, cry out to you. Cry out to you and seek to know you more. God, we love you. You are a good God. You are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of all our love. You are worthy of all our devotion. And it's in the precious name of your son who gave himself up for us and died on that cross for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.